You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Um, as we think and reflect and uh, talk about your Holy Spirit, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would uh, fill our hearts, that we may worship you and know you and uh, be filled with joy. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are doing a, a, a series on the Acts of the Apostles. It's a several parts. Um, last week we had a, a bit of an introduction in which uh, we talked about just uh, what kind of book is Acts. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's that's a possibility. <clears throat> um, yeah. Um, and so we talked about. Uh, uh, the importance of a genre of a book, how when you, uh, uh, even though the Bible is the word of God, uh, yet it was written by humans, and humans communicate with each other by means of certain conventions, and we call those conventions genres. Uh, and so, uh, my suggestion to you was that the genre of the Acts of the Apostles was uh, that of history, that we should think we should think of it as a as a book of history, but a history uh, written in the ancient world, not history from the modern world. Uh, and so it was a kind of history which is uh, much more selective, much more theological, uh, not less truthful, just a little bit differently uh, than 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 today's. Uh, but nevertheless, it was history. History. Uh, and we didn't get to finish uh, last week, so let me just very quickly finish uh, the the part on what what Acts is, and then we'll move to the Holy Spirit. Uh, there was a handout; uh, it's probably been hopefully recycled somewhere. Um, yeah, but uh, I wanted to to conclude the class last week uh, when the when the bells. I don't know if they literally went out, but yeah, but but it time. Time was up. Uh, but uh, on asking the following question, uh, in in what sense is Acts history? Uh, so how is Acts history, how is that different from a historical novel? Okay, so as I briefly mentioned last week, uh, historical novels are very popular today. They're, they're a lot of fun, you know, because... Uh, you get to learn about a particular period uh, and uh, places, and uh, they're fun. So, what will be the difference? The difference between uh, historical fiction and a book of history. Where where do we find uh, the difference? They're both referring to the past, right? So, if I pick up a historical fiction on World War II in London. London during World War II. Uh, the historical novel is referring to the past. Well, Acts is referring to the past. The historical novel may, uh, novel may mention uh, Winston Churchill, prime minister at that time. Acts may mention uh, who? Uh, King yeah, King Herod. Someone from that period. Uh, the historical novel may mention uh, about somebody falling into the Thames or something like that. And 
you know, Luke mentioned somebody going on the Mediterranean Sea. So they're both referring to the past. So wh why is it then that when you go to a bookstore, historical novels are not in the same section as history? How are they different? Wouldn't it have to do with the truth and eyewitnesses, ancient eyewitnesses? Uh-huh. Authorship? How so? It's also the translation. So if you have a historical novel, it gets the truth and matter. It may talk about the Battle of the Bull, or it may talk about Gettysburg in a very historic sense, and the actual actions are true, but we don't necessarily know the words that are communicated. Take, for instance, like the book The Killer Angels, which is about Gettysburg. We don't know what Grant, or not Grant, but Lee, were really saying those things, but it gets to the truth of it. This, these actions did happen, but did this really, or this is really said in the context of that battle. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So a lot of fiction uh, adds, uh, it's, it's often about a historical event, but includes details that may or may not have happened to kind of fill the story in. Right. Like, you know, it gives us a personal connection to it, a personal draw. Okay. Good. I mean, I think those are thoughtful. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, the way I see it is that the main difference between uh, the genre of history and the historical fiction novel is the uh, claim of the author. In a history, the author, so going back to what you said, in a history, the author claims uh, this is as things actually happen. Uh, in the historical fiction, you have a little disclaimer in the front that says, uh, to the extent that uh, that that these things happen in connection in the connections that I'm making, they are purely coincidental. Do you see? So the historical fiction writer is saying, uh, I'm going to talk about the past, and uh, the connections that are, that I'm portraying here as happening are purely coincidental. Whereas the historical writer is saying. No, this is as it actually happened. So do you see the difference? So that's very important. Uh, and that brings us back then finally to, to Acts. If, if you could convince me that Acts is, the book of Acts is a different genre, hey, that's fine. Uh, just because it is history doesn't mean that it is, uh, so hold on, let me pause that thought. Uh, so a number of people, when they talk about the Bible and they talk about the Gospels and Acts and the Old Testament, they they say, oh no, it's history, it's history. Um, and sure, okay, I can agree with, with, with a lot of that, but one of the reasons they say that is because they think that truth can best, can best be communicated by the historical genre. And my question is this, can truth be only communicated through history through the through prose what is history is a prose chronological prose this happened and this happened or can you speak the truth in more ways than one depends on the truth you're looking for whether factual truth philosophical truth religious truth experiential truth yes so uh yeah so uh I think so. I think that kind of answers my. I think that that kind of answers my question. Yes, you can. So, for example, I can talk about uh, my courtship with my wife Kristen uh, that happened in the past, and I can talk to you about it in different ways. I can say, okay, on 
September, such as such a year, I met Kristen, and she was here. And then give you a sort of boring historical narrative. Or I could write a beautiful, a beautiful poem about how we met and use metaphor and all kinds of things. Which one is more true? Well, they're both true. It's just a way of talking about the past. So what, when, when I insist here that Acts is history, I'm not saying that, that just because I believe that it's history, therefore it's true. We know that some historians lie, right? Uh, I'm just saying that the genre, uh, there are so many features of the genre of history present in Acts that it leads me to believe that it should be history. So you see, it's more of a where I see the evidence is not so much of a it's not so much coming from a theological belief that something must be history to be more true. Okay. Any questions as we uh, wrap up this first part, more uh, theoretical? Oh. Uh-huh. Of course, St. Luke presents it as a matter of investigative recording for Theophilus. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the, yeah. Right, and you know, there is an element of faith in that because there were people who did that, but that subverted, they used that to. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you know, you have a lot of uh, features that, uh, that make it seem like it's true. Uh, and he does make a truth claim at the beginning. Uh, and uh, at the end of the day, it's do you believe by faith that it's true or not? Okay, you can't prove that it's true, but it's the the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. That doesn't mean that we cannot investigate the past and see. But we always have to keep in mind that uh, even people who do not, who are writing fiction are using features of the time to make it to make it more reality like. So, okay. Let's uh, move then to, to part two. I don't have a handout for you today because we're, we're going to be uh, really mostly looking at a text. Um, and that's uh, Acts chapter two. So go ahead. And... So the first part of the study was on uh, what is the Acts of the Apostles. The second part of this study is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. So let's be looking at uh, Acts chapter 2. Let's see, I'm trying to do too many things here. Hold a coffee. Keep the computer. Oh, Going to have a disaster here. Okay. Okay, let's uh, move to Acts 2. Uh, someone has called uh, the Acts of the Apostles the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because uh, in many ways, the principal character... In the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit. From the very beginning, you hear of the Holy Spirit. You he- you actually hear the Holy Spirit talking. Uh, all the decisions of the church are made under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it is not a bad title to call uh, the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, one uh, scholar whom, whom I know is a very good scholar at, the univers- at Duke University, uh, when uh, he begins a course on the Acts of the Apostles, he asks some of his students, are you Pentecostal? Many Pente- Pente- Pentecostals uh, put a lot of emphasis on the movement of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I am. He says, well, Luke was a Pentecostal like you in a similar sense. Because for him, the Holy Spirit was uh, at the front of the church. 
Uh, and so, this, I want to make uh, two statements today about the Holy Spirit. The first one is the following, uh, and it is this. Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit, which we find in Acts chapter 2, is presented as the foundational event for the formation of the church. The coming of the Holy Spirit, described in Acts 2, is presented as the foundational event for the formation of the church. So that's pretty big, uh, foundational event for the formation of the church. And uh, the church, of course, is not finished in Acts chapter 2, but here well, we are told that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, it begins to be formed. So let's read this text, uh, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, to Judaism, excuse me, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Word of the Lord. So, uh, here we have the foundational event of the church with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let me make a few, uh, let's make a few observational and exegetical comments from this text. Uh, the first thing that I want to uh, mention is how it begins. Uh, Luke begins by saying, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, he didn't have to say that. He didn't have to say that. He could just have said on a certain day, as the disciples were together, and in fact, you find statements like that all over Acts on a certain day, in the evening, in the morning. But he says he's specific and says on the day of Pentecost. So when you read scripture, it's always good to ask, why is that there or why is it not there? In this case, it is here and it is on the day of Pentecost. Why would he mention the day of Pentecost? Well, it might be helpful to, to talk for just a minute about how the readers uh, of that time understood the day of Pentecost. We may understand it a different way today, but uh, what matters is the way that they understood it for uh, for part of the interpretation. Okay, so the day of Pentecost, uh, a number of things. Number one, uh, it was the 50th day from the first Sunday after Passover. So the Jews celebrated Passover. Uh, and after that first Sunday of Passover, 50 days from then, Pentecost was celebrated. So 
the first Sunday after Passover, 50th day from the first day after Passover. Hence, you got... <laughs> They're, they're getting filled with the Spirit or something. No. Uh, the 50th day, uh, so Pente, uh 5, yeah, from the day after Passover. Uh, also was known, the day of uh, Pentecost was also known as the day, quote, the day of first fruits. The day of first fruits, you can find that in Numbers 28, 26. So this was the day when the uh, first fruits of the harvest were presented and offered to the Lord. Now, a little bit more, uh, in, perhaps more interesting, but uh, uh, but somewhat uh, uh, speculative, is uh, the suggestion that a number of people, especially rabbis, some rabbinic sources, view the day of Pentecost as the anniversary of the giving of the law. So remember, uh, Jews come out of Egypt. They go through Mount Sinai. They are there, and one day the Lord meets them at the foot of the mountain, and He gives them His Torah. He gives them His law. Uh, and some rabbis suggested that uh, Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, was the anniversary. The first Pentecost was the anniversary of the giving of the law. The problem now did the New Testament writers believe this? We don't know because some of the sources are after the New Testament. Um, even though the traditions may go to prior to the New Testament, but keep that in mind as you read the text, and it, that may help it makes uh, may help it make better sense for you. So on the day of Pentecost, we still know that it was a very important day for the Jews, the day of the first fruits. And now let's look at the language that Luke uses to describe the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, consider uh, the following words. So in verse 2, we hear suddenly a sound. So keep that, that word in mind, uh, sound. The next uh, phrase is, uh, uh, you may have a different translation, but I have a rushing wind from heaven. Do some of you have a violent wind? Yeah, I don't know that that's the best translation. That sounds like a tornado or a hurricane, and that's not quite what it was. Uh, what do you have? Mighty Russian wind. Yeah, I, I like that. Uh, and then we also hear of tongues of fire. So keep in mind th those three images. Uh, sound, a sound, a rushing wind from heaven, and tongues of fire. Now... As someone who knew their Old Testament and, and the original readers of Acts certainly would have known the Old Testament uh, would have heard many echoes of another text in these passages. And so I want us to look real quick at Exodus. So let's go from Acts to back to Exodus, which I think is what people call the intertext, the uh the text that is encoded in Acts 2, I think, is uh, Exodus 19, 16-25. And again, this is when the Lord is coming down to Mount Sinai to make a covenant with the people. Then in chapter 20, He gives them the Ten Commandments. But this is fascinating. You'll find it fascinating, I think. 19, verse 16, it says... 
On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. So you hear a sound. Okay. 17, then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. So we have uh, sound, we have fire. Uh, it continues, the smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. And then verse 19, uh, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Uh, and so on and so on. Uh, but but you, you when you look at the imagery here of sound, uh, the, the Lord coming down like fire onto them, um, I, I, I'm pretty convinced that when Luke describes the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2, He's echoing the coming down of Yahweh, the coming down of the Lord at Sinai to give the people the law. Uh, so what would be the theological statement that Luke may be making by linking these two texts? Um, what, 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 what is he saying about the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, I think he's saying that the Holy Spirit is God. Just as Yahweh came down uh, in fire with a loud sound uh, and shook up the people, so now the Holy Spirit comes down with this, with sound, with a rushing wind, with fire, and of course He shakes up the people here. So I, I think too, in First Kings nineteen, when Elijah stands in the, the Lord's presence, passes by him, and there's a wind. Oh yes, yes, I hadn't thought about that. Yes, yes. The um, yes, I'll steal that one from you if you don't. Yeah. First Kings fifteen. Yes. With the wind and the oh yes, yes. Very good. Yeah, and that's why some have said that we should read it in light of this rabbinic idea that uh, Pentecost is the anniversary of the giving of Torah. See, so just so so just as God uh, gave the Torah in the Old Testament, so now He's giving His Spirit. He's form He was forming a people in Exodus. I think the problem with that is that he's, I think He sort of began to form a people already with Abraham, like in Genesis 12. Right. So, but I do think that there are some parallels there. Yeah. From the theological standpoint, does the uh, uh, implication that Holy Spirit is God does that have Trinitarian implications? Yeah, it does. It does, and we're going to tease those out in just a, in just a minute here. But but yes, it's uh you know you're reading that and and. Uh, as a, as a reader of the Bible, and, and so I could tell, most of you, not all of you, are readers of the Bible just from the fact that you are 
quoting other scripture, uh, you hear and hear about uh, and think about this uh, images, and it, ma- it just makes you think of God. You know, every time God appears, this is what accompanies Him when He appears. And now you're hearing about this, and you might think, "Oh, the Lord is coming down." And then in verse four, you hear the following. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, wait a minute. It's the Holy Spirit who has come down. But he comes down just like Yahweh. So so who is this Holy Spirit? Now, as you keep reading Acts and from other traditions in the New Testament, for example, uh, Matthew 28, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All of that uh, comes together. Okay, so... uh, I'm suggesting then that the first section of Acts chapter 2, it's uh, all the description is there, uh, not only to tell us what happened on the first day of Pentecost, but also to suggest to us by means of intertextuality that the Holy Spirit is none other than God coming down on His people. And then uh, we see the third main point here, which is that they were filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4. Notice the inclusivity of the language in verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, who are all of them? If you go back to chapter 1, uh, we are told, uh, so um, in verse, let's see, what's the best one? Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judah, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So you have the disciples, uh, Mary, uh, the women who were disciples of Jesus, and I think the idea is that all of them, all of, not just the twelve, but all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. To raise a Pentecostal head and they began to speak in tongues. It didn't say some of them did. Yeah. All of them. Yeah, all of them did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Yeah. We'll talk about about tongues here and so on. Um, but yes. But I think that's important uh, for Luke. Uh, the work of the ministry. Is the, is the work of everyone in the church. Uh, sure, you have the apostles who are the foundation. Uh, they are the ones who were present with Jesus. They are the ones who therefore passed down the tradition about who Jesus was and explained that tradition. But they pass it down to all the disciples and all our disciples. All, uh, not only disciples, but all can be ministers. So not just Peter and Paul, but we hear of Philip having uh, daughters who are prophetesses later on in the, in the book of Acts. So, uh, the Spirit comes upon all of them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, and then we hear that, that they began to speak in other tongues. Okay, so I personally see uh, tongues as, I see two different phenomena in the New Testament when uh, it speaks about uh, speaking in tongues. Here, I, it seems to me that it's referring to known languages or known dialects. Uh, they receive the Holy Spirit and they're able to speak in many different languages, which they previously did not know. So that's one understanding, uh, or that's my view of what's happened here. 
But then I also think from uh, 1 Corinthians 14, there's another type of tongues uh, that the the Lord can give to some of His people. Uh, and that's a prayer language where people pray in tongues. Um, and have uh, I know many wonderful believers who find that uh, to be a, a very edifying and powerful experience. I don't think that, that that's what is happening here. I think here is more to do with... Uh, uh, speaking, it's not so much with prayer here. Here, I think it's more a proclamation uh, in in different languages and different tongues. So they were filled with the with the Holy Spirit. We need to think. Uh, so what what does that mean? Uh, what does that mean when it says that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, Peter in the speech that follows is going to develop that for us. But let me make three quick statements about that. What does that mean that they were filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, number one, keep in mind the promise of John the Baptist in the first volume of Luke-Acts. What did John say when he was baptizing? He says, uh, I baptize you with water, but one is coming. And when he comes, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to baptize you with the Spirit and, and with fire. Tongues of fire. Like tongues of So, notice that Luke has to use uh, simile here. He cannot quite describe what it is. So he says, it was like tongues of fire. Oftentimes when the transcendent breaks into humanity, we don't have the language to explain it. And so we have to say, it was like this, like that. Think of the book of Revelation. His voice was like the sound of many waters. The human cannot uh, grasp in, in, his total, in her totality says, who God is. Uh, so he or she has to use... Uh, uh, analogical language and that's what we have here so but but what this is, is this is that promise J- John said John the Bible someone is going to come and he's going to baptize you with the spirit and fire here it is he is baptizing them with the spirit and with fire what does that mean to be baptized with the spirit and with fire well three three quick points here number one it means that the day of the Lord has come the day of the Lord has come God's salvation has finally returned to His people. Uh, remember how this section ends with some people asking, what does this mean? Oh, what a perfect way to allow Peter to speak. What does this mean? Oh, let me explain. <laughs> and then Peter is going to explain by quoting from the book of Joel uh, in verses 17 to 21 of chapter 2. And there it says uh, very quickly, in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit in the last days, I will put out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will put out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy and so on. And then uh, he says in verse 21, And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is the day of the Lord. That day that had been promised in Isaiah, and especially in the 12 prophets at the end of the Old Testament, that day is here. It has dawned. It's not completely here in its totality, because the world didn't end there. Uh, in a sense, it just began. But God's salvation, long awaited, is now here. The day of the Lord has come. God's salvation has returned. So that's a promise that that the people of God have been waiting for for many, many years. I mean, think about it. Uh, so when the south part of Israel, Judea, they were exiled to Babylon. Uh, what happened to the other ten tribes in the north? We don't know. They sort of got lost, dispersed. 
but but think about what happened to the to these Jews. How they bounced around. They so they they were under Babylon, then they were under the Persians, and after the Persians they were under Alexander the Great, and after Alexander the Great they were under the Ptolemies, those who followed Alexander the Great. They had a little period of freedom there under the Hasmoneans, the Maccabees. But then the Maccabees made a deal with the devil. They made a deal with the Romans at one point. And then they were under Rome. So the Jews were waiting for a king. Uh, and uh, they have been waiting a long time. <laughs> they have been bounced around. And, 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 and of course, we know that all of the, uh, many of the misunderstandings with Jesus coming as a king, they thought he was going to be a political overthrow it or Rome and so on but no but but the point is that the Lord is coming and he brings his salvation with him and his salvation is more than just political liberation it may include that and I think it will include that but it but it also includes other things there are other things that we need to be liberated from that are not just politics uh, or political powers over over us so the day of the, the, the day of the Lord has done number one the first first thing I think uh, the Holy Spirit coming that it means the day of the Lord has come number two purification he will baptize you with the spirit and with fire so when and we see it tongues of fire the disciples are being purified they're being purified to be witnesses for the Lord and then the third thing I want to say is that it talks about the intimate presence of the Lord in the lives of the believers now it makes you think and this is not original with me I read it from another commentator but the whole thing of the of the tongues of fire uh, makes you think of the burning bush in the book of Exodus, where Moses sees the burning. What is what in the world is that? Let me go check it out. They like, take off your sandals. Don't come any closer. Well, now the tongues of fire are right on the believers. The Lord is with them. They have an intimate presence with the Lord that uh, was not the case before. In the past, the Spirit would come sometimes under certain people, right? Like remember Saul. The Spirit came on Saul, and he went kind of crazy. Uh, and then and then he would leave. But here now, in Christ, all the believers have an uh, intimate relationship with the Lord by means of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful, wonderful news. Any questions before we move on to the what happens next here? So so that's the that's the great news of this text. That now. Uh, you don't have to ask, you know, where is the Lord? Is he there? See here, he's with you. He's with you. Uh, it also makes me think too, like the not just the burning bush, but in the tabernacle, like how do they know the presence of the Lord was there? Yeah. Came down very good, very good. He came, smoke on fire came down, but not all the people could go near, right? And it was a sense of fear, but but now he comes to to reside and to live within them. Mm-hmm. What a wonderful promise. Yes, in a, in a more intimate way. Well, the coming of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is here the formation of the church, has significance not only for the believers, but it has significance for the rest of the world. And uh, the reason I say that is because right after speaking of uh, their speaking in tongues in verse 4, uh, Luke gives us an, uh, a sort of international... Uh, roll call here uh, sort of a map 
uh, of the people who were, in Jer- who were in Jerusalem at that time. Look at verse 5. Now, uh, there were standing in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, they were in bewilderment. Uh, utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How, we, how do we hear them in, in our own tongues, in our own languages? Now, verse, from verse 9 through verse 11, it's a parenthesis. It's the author, Luke, breaks in and tells you. It's not that the people are saying, Oh, Cretans! And that, you know, that, that's not what it is. It's Luke interrupting, as it were, and giving you, uh, telling you of the different nations who are here. And we hear of all these nations, uh, most of the scholarship on, on this text has suggested that uh, this text goes back to the table of nations of Genesis 10. So if you remember, after the sons of uh, Noah, they were all dispersed and they filled the earth, right? And, uh, and we see a table of nations in Genesis 10. We have a new table of nations here. Uh, but whereas they are being this, whereas in the past they were being dispersed, now they're being brought together by the by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the coming of the Holy Spirit, I would say here, it's an intimation, it's a, a, a promise of what's going to happen in the rest of the Acts of the Apostles, that God is going to set His kingdom. The Lord is going to become the Lord of not just the Jews, but many people, Gentiles, and everyone around. So that's the promise. And we know that that would be difficult to fulfill because the people of God themselves often would get in the way. What, can a Gentile really become a... Don't they have to be circumcised? All that, all that kind of stuff. But I think that, that that's, uh, that's, that's the point here. Now, uh, let me... We have until what, 10... Okay, so two minutes. So let me let me wrap it up here by talking about uh, what does this mean then that uh, you have all these nations here, uh, and and I can show you a map. Uh, remember, people didn't have maps like we do today, right? Um, where is this place? You just you know, a map. So people have mental maps, but the map that Luke is working here is a Jewish map that has Jerusalem at the center of the world. And all these other nations around Jerusalem. So it's a Jewish map he's working with. Um, and it's interesting because the gospel is going to go out of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. So that's the idea. But what does this mean? That uh, uh, the Spirit is coming and, and, and you have all these people. Okay, let me make uh, here four quick points here. Number one, it, it means that, again, God is becoming king in all the world. He's setting up His kingdom in all the world. What is the kingdom of God? We hear that phrase a lot in Jesus. The kingdom of God has come, He says. The kingdom of God simply means God being king. With the coming of the Holy Spirit, empowering the the disciples to preach the gospel, it means that God is becoming king in all the world. But here comes the twist on that. And this is the second point. The king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was crucified and raised. God becoming king, great. Even some Jews would say, all Jews would say yes to that. But when you hear that the king is none other than the crucified Jesus. And the raised Jesus. Then that's where the separation comes in. But the king who is going to be reigning is the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified and raised. Number three. Uh, Jesus is the one who, with the Father, 
having been raised to the right hand of the Father, the Father and Jesus send the Holy Spirit. This is a, you talk about Trinitarian uh, comments uh, before, and you find that in verse 32 of chapter 2, it says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and has poured it out, and has poured out, excuse me, what you now see and hear. So you get the sense that Jesus sits at the right hand of God, reigning together with the Father, they send the Holy Spirit uh, to be with His people, to make His people, and to be King amongst the nations. And then lastly, I think the last point that uh, that we should draw from uh, uh, the, the, the mention of the nations here is that God now wants to include all the Gentile nations in His salvation. It's not just for Jews, it's not just for Israel or Jerusalem, but it's all the nations of the world uh, through Christ alone, uh, who can now c- come and be, and be His His people. Uh, I was going to end with a couple of points about the Holy Spirit being the guide of the ancient church, the early church, and also being our guide and how that works in daily life. But we'll have to stop that for next for next lesson. But any quick questions as we uh, close? All right, let's pray then. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you want to be with us, despite the fact that uh, oftentimes we're people who are not uh, uh, very livable with uh, our behaviors, our thoughts, our attitudes, and yet you want to be our God. And uh, you came and took a cross for us to be our God. And we praise you and give you thanks for that. In the name of Jesus, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.